This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash I was 12 years old and could not sleep the night before, knowing that I was going to take the same trip as Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly and Creepy Carpus and the Birdman of Alcatraz. I was going to the rock. I was going inside. I was going to stand in the yard. I was going to walk on Broadway. I was going to see the dummy heads and their escape route. I felt real connected to the escape from Alcatraz for a couple of reasons. One, Alan West and I shared the same birthday, March 25th, and his daddy was from Savannah, Georgia. The Anglin brothers... John and Clarence were from Dawsonville, Georgia. So again, I felt connected and I wanted this trip so that I could see for myself whether they made it or not. Now the FBI would say things like, oh, the strong currents and the cold water. There were no stolen cars. Their families didn't have enough money to help them. And in 17 years, there was no evidence that was credible that they were alive. Well, the FBI ended up closing this case in 1979. So again, for the 12-year-old me, my feeling was Alan West was a con man. I think he lied to throw them off. I always thought that perhaps the three of them took a train like hobos. There was a paddle found on Angel Island, similar to the one they found at the prison. I know for a fact, growing up in a family with people that had your back, that they will keep your secrets. So it didn't faze me at all that the family said they didn't know anything. Of course they wouldn't tell if they knew. There was a policeman that said he saw a boat there waiting kind of in the harbor. And again, the 12-year-old me would say to the FBI, you have no evidence they're alive but you don't have any evidence they're dead either. Now, James Whitey Bulger said the cheers could be heard for miles 
every minute that they were able to be gone, they were about five minutes ahead of law enforcement is the way I see it. And one of the guards wrote in his notes about that evening, everything was quiet and seemed normal. Now, anybody in law enforcement knows that's the kiss of death. If you start th- start saying things are too quiet or everything's normal, something is about to pop off. Alcatraz, The Rock, in 1934, became the most secure prison in the world. Its inmates were the worst of the worst. All of them were public enemies. The guards performed dozens of checks every day. They had towers with armed guards, barbed wire, fences, locks. Who in the world could get out of this place? Well, 36 men tried in 14 different escapes, but there's only one mystery. And I think that it is time to bring in our expert. Y'all, I am so excited to introduce y'all to Michael Esslinger. He is not only an author about Alcatraz and about the inmates from that island, I had the absolute honor of taking a tour where Michael was the tour guide. And you want to talk about seeing Alcatraz in the most complete 361 ever? You got to go with him. And let me tell you a cute, funny story. He also took the Kardashians on a private tour. So the morning that we're getting ready to go meet Michael, I said to my daughter, I said, this is probably going to be like deja vu for him. And then, of course, she said, Mama, please don't make that joke. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the reality. He knows more than almost anybody else. And when you walk with him, he will point things out that you would have never noticed. That's not even published anywhere. Michael, welcome to Zone 7. Oh, thank you, Mac. What a what a pleasure. And that was such a such a great trip together. I really enjoyed that. Both of us had a friend in common. And this friend was an inmate on Alcatraz, and he was a character. And we got the invitation, I guess you would say, for lack of a better word, from his family to go with them to the island for his memorial service. I don't know about your first feelings, but I was blown away by the compassion and just respect that the Park Service gave to his family. You know, it's it's such a profound thing, you know. I mean, it, he's not not the first that I'm aware of that actually has had some of his ashes spread there. You know, what's so profound about it to me is that many people see Alcatraz, obviously, as a really horrific place. But I think from a convict's point of view and a lot of the men that spent time there, they kind of saw it as a new beginning, was sort of the end of the line, right, in the federal prison service. So for many of these men, I think that it was kind of the wake-up call that they needed to change their life. And I think that for a lot of them, that's, that's where that change took place. And, you know, Alcatraz is obviously very different from other prisons. I've interviewed uh, probably, you know, close to 40 former convicts that were incarcerated on Alcatraz. And they all talk about how conditions in other prisons like Leavenworth and Atlanta and some of these other facilities where you don't really have a good sense of what's beyond the walls. 
you're in a very remote location, so there's no sense of society outside of those walls. We're on Alcatraz, right? You've got the beautiful vistas of, of San Francisco, and you're out in the middle of this you know, beautiful bay. And everything is so close yet so far. You can hear the sounds of the city. Uh, you know, Whitey Bulger, who spent a lot of time up on the third tier of C Block, you know, he says that he can remember actually seeing the lights from a fire engine and hearing sirens and those kind of things. So as you can imagine, everything lost is right there in view. The gentleman we were just talking about, his name was Robert Chablon. And Michael, I got to tell you, when I went and met with him at his house in Florida, of course, obviously, our conversation went to the escape. And I asked him, I said, well, do you think they made it? And he went, he laughed. You know how Robert would laugh. And he <laughs> said, no, I told him they were going to die. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, the 12-year-old me was like oh, a little disheartened. Being able to be with you on Alcatraz with Kelly and the family to honor Bob was, it was so important to me and honestly, a career highlight. I had obviously heard about people having memorial services and funerals on Alcatraz, but I had never been able to be involved. And uh, it, it was extraordinary, but you added to that so much by showing us so many small details and facts and history that I had never heard. And I thought of myself as a pretty decent expert. It's kind of cliche, but you know, there, there are so many layers of history to Alcatraz and, you know, it started off as, um, uh, as a military fort, uh, just before the civil war era. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go under the cell house, the Citadel structure that was built just before the civil war started and it was, and was there, um, you know, the, the soldier graffiti is still there. It's like a time capsule under there. I first went there as a kid and I became absolutely fascinated with it. I, in fact, had met Clarence Carnes, who was also believed to have had a role in the escape, but ended up popping out. And, you know, just hearing his stories and later in life, I was just so fascinated that I, you know, I read a lot of books on it. And then I, you know, ended up, uh, you know, reaching out to him later in life and had found that he had reoffended and was back in prison. But when I started doing interviews with a lot of these guys, it's just their stories are so fascinating to me. And, and, you know, and that's another part of it is that, you know, Bob was right in the thick of it. I mean, he literally had a cell that was on the very same corridor that wasn't, wasn't very populated, by the way, um, on the night of the escape. You know, there wasn't that many convicts that were, you know, on that corridor. And, you know, he served time next to men like uh, Neil McCauley, who was a, a bank robber. Um, he was the subject of the film with um, uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Val Kilner, the, the movie Heat. Bob knew him really well. You know, he was there during the time that Mickey Cohen, you know, Frankie Carbo, um, obviously with Frank Morris, the Anglins, Whitey Bulger. I mean, it was like this hall of fame of, of criminals all under the same roof. So he shared a dinner table with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so. They spoke freely. It was fantastic. And his stories, I mean, oh my gosh. When he talks about Machine Gun Kelly and calling him Pop Gun, I mean, come on. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the, the, the part of it. And I, you know, I'm always fascinated by it. And just the, the details, you know, I remember Bulger saying that uh, Clarence Cards would come by the cell and he'd say that, you know, hey, you know, Al Capone checked out this book three times. You know, here's his number in the back and, you know, it's recommended and endorsed by him. And, and you know, they're reading from the same pages and sort of and I think if you look back to the 30s all the way up until its closure and today, 
it's kind of the magic of of walking through that building. You know, it's still as it was back then. I mean, if you look up to the the upper tiers, you know, it's still the very same paint that was there during the convicts. You can still see the paint from Alan West, by the way, when he was painting up there up on the ceiling, which I find completely fascinating. I do want to get into the escape. And if you could just paint for people the picture of what transpired as far as how they started this plan. I mean, Alcatraz at the time, right? It was basically seen as inescapable. The prison itself was built in a way that no outer wall from a cell, there was no way to escape from their perspective anyways, from their cells. And I think that you're sitting in the middle of the bay, you know, obviously one of the biggest deterrents is the San Francisco Bay waters that, you know, typically was in the low 50s. Um, the currents, uh, if you didn't have a tide chart, the currents could be pretty extreme. I mean, one of the things that people fail to realize is that you see these people that swim, competitive swimming off of Alcatraz all the time, but they're swimming during a slack tide. They're waiting until you have kind of a neutral tide state where they can kind of make it back to the shore without, you know, uh, without fighting currents, so to speak. By 1962, during that period of the escape, it was kind of a different era on Alcatraz. A lot of the security measures that had been implemented in the 1930s, um, a lot of them had been relaxed. When the prison first opened, there had been the silence rule. And by the time of 1962, during the escape, they had a music program. They allowed the convicts about an hour before bedtime. They could actually play instruments in their cells. They had a radio, a radio jack in their cells. And most importantly is that they also had closed many of the guard towers during the nighttime hours where, you know, initially there had been six towers. And by the time of the escape, the only working tower uh, was the dock tower. But to kind of frame up a little about the escape, there was um, four conspirators in the escape and uh, Frank Morris, uh, John and Clarence Anglin, who I ended up writing a book with the nephew of the Anglins. And then, as you mentioned, Alan West. And there's a lot of debate as far as who is really the architect of the escape. Um, a lot of people do credit that to Alan West because Alan actually was working in the cell house and he would have been able to sort of observe the different weaknesses at that period of time, you know, with kind of officer routines, all of those things. But from my perspective, I think that it was sort of a, a collective of all of the convicts that were involved including some of the others. I don't believe that Whitey Bulger was directly involved, but he definitely was in the know. He had mutual friends. And you got to remember that at the time of this escape, there's only about 200, I think the official number was 234. So you've only got 234 men under the same roof. And I think to some degree, there was a lot of communication and probably, for lack of a better term, sharing best practices on different weaknesses. There's a, there's a great memorandum from March of 1961 where an officer actually sees Clarence Anglin, uh, Clarence Joe Carnes, um, and some of these other convicts talking. I always kind of credit that officer thinking that he was very observant because he writes a memo and says, hey, I saw something that I think that we should be watching because when I got closer, they stopped talking and it seems like they're conspiring about something. But long story short, uh, so Alan West is actually starting to do painting up in the top of the cell house. And he sees an abandoned vent that when um, the Battle of Alcatraz that took place in 1946, they were throwing grenades up into the cell block and it damaged a lot of these, these blowers 
And so what they did was is that they, you know, because it was on top of a secure cell block, they didn't really have a way to dismantle it and take it out. So they just left the blower on top of the cell house and then they put a passive vent on top of the roof. He looks at it and realizes, hey, I think that this might be a way out for us. And basically shares that with Frank Morris. And then Frank Morris, which it's in the records, he actually gets a cell on the very top tier, on the end of that tier, where every time he comes out of his cell for a meal, he can actually look up to kind of analyze that vent. And the next thing you know, which is kind of amazing to me, I mean, here's where the mystery really sort of comes in, is that Alan West actually gets permission that he's painting on top of the cell block in this sort of barred off area that's on top of the cell block itself and has access to this vent. But he actually talks the officers into allowing him to hang blankets around the bars in this enclosed space up top. And that way he can kind of work in private. And then all of the different convicts who are involved, they start obtaining raincoats. They actually start, you know, Clarence Anglin, who's in the escape as a barber in the barbershop, as he's cutting hair, he starts clipping hair and then dropping the bits of hair into the cuffs of his pants and then taking them back to the cell. Yeah. And then after all <laughs> of this time, I think after many, many months of planning, they actually are able to successfully, they're, they're working on top of the cell block during music hours. They're putting these dummy heads in to sort of as a ruse for the officers um, and then most, you know, without getting too far ahead, which I, I think for me, unfortunately, I wasn't able to locate this until after uh, after the book had come out. Uh, but I did include it in the, in the book that I did with Whitey Bulger and, and doing interviews with him was that I found a memo where an officer says that um, one of the officers admitted that he failed to do a count that night. And I think that when you look at it, there there had been kind of a complacency that because Alcatraz was so secure, like they would have never imagined in a million years that once they're in their cell, there would have ever been a way out. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And that's where one of the big failures took place. So, so the amazing part about it is, is that under these incredible conditions, these men actually, at lights out, they immediately make it out of their cells. They plant these dummy heads that they've made. They get on top of the cell block. A lot of the convicts actually hear the noises as the the vent gets pushed over. They've been able to cut through the bars and uh, also the bolts of this vent, and they push it over. and uh, And I always imagine what that must have been like to get on on top of the roof, and you're looking out towards the cityscape, and that view of you know no bars, nothing between you. And then of course they made it into the water, and that's where the mystery begins. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There are reports that there was a makeshift raft and an oar and footprints walking away from it on Angel Island. You've got the police officer that, again, to me, he didn't benefit by saying what he saw. And this was not a person that untrained. He was observant. He made note of it. It stayed with him. And he noticed it before he would have ever known that the escape had occurred because that wasn't known till the next morning. So if he's telling people the night before, it seems pretty legit. And it's interesting because, you know, when I was doing interviews with Whitey Bulger, he talked a lot about a big part of their planning and their discussion. When they hit the water, they had a plan A, they had a plan B, they had a plan C. They had had went through so many different layers of planning on what they were going to do, where they were going to go, they were going to cut ties. And the incredible thing to me is, is that if they were able to make it to shore and get into a car, they could have literally been in Mexico by the time that they were discovered missing just by, by driving. That's right. So, um, so it's, it's possible. And, and, you know, I always look at Whitey Bulger, you know, I mean, he was a ghost for 16 years, you know, he was living right under their noses. So I think that it's always a possibility. I want to get back to Robert for a minute because Again, when I was visiting with him, this was obviously something that I focused on was the escape. And, you know, I think a lot of the inmates there knew about it, had heard about it, and were helping in different ways. But Robert mentioned to me that he helped them with the tides tables and understanding when the best place to launch from and the best time at night to leave. Very true. And, you know, it's amazing to me because um, I remember when he originally had talked about that, I'm not a fisherman or anything, so I had never heard of a newspaper publishing the tide tables in the newspaper. 
And I thought that that was very suspect. And, um, and you know, I, I love Bob and, you know, he's such a character. You always kind of want to make sure that you're kind of validating what these people say. And, um, and so I remember him telling me the story, you know, his, he worked on the dock at the time and indicated that it was not unusual that when the officers would be, you know, eating lunch um, in the dock area, that they would be having a cigarette after they eat, they'd be reading the newspaper, and then they would just throw the newspaper into the garbage. So I went back um, and I ended up, you know, finding the, uh, the newspapers for the day of the escape. And sure enough, the tide tables were actually published in the paper. <laughs> and that's something. Yeah. And he, and he was so funny because he was like, look, a lot of people were involved. And he said the Birdman of Alcatraz actually was teaching the Anglin brothers Spanish. Well, one thing that I found interesting in part of, um, I think it was Clarence's personal effects, was a Spanish dictionary. So, again, there's there's all these connections where people are like, hey, if you're going to try it, I'm going to help you. You know, maybe I can get you a saw blade. Maybe, hey, here's a motor from the broken vacuum cleaner. And while y'all are, you know, drilling and sawing away, I'm going to play music so that the guards don't hear you. So they did have this team aspect to it to say, if you're going to do it, you know, there's a good possibility you ain't going to make it or that you could die, but we're going to help you because, if one of you gets out, it's kind of a little bit of freedom for all of us. Absolutely. And and that's exactly what Whitey Bulger had said. He said that morning when they figured out that they had actually made the escape. And, and from what he said was, is that, you know, those who were in the know, you know, Bulger said he was awake all night. He said he it was one of the first times where he had actually stayed awake all night. Everybody was just in absolute suspense waiting for the guards to notice them gone. And he said that when the sun came up and, you know, they first heard the guards screaming that they're gone, um, he said that everybody started cheering. And, and I love his quote because he said in that very moment, it was a mo moment of freedom for all of us. And just imagine how profound that is that after being open for almost 30 years, that these guys, they disappeared. They'd been gone all night and nobody ever, you know, heard or seen them again. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm not champion escaping from prison. I don't want anybody to misunderstand where I'm coming from, but there is that aspect of just human nature that sometimes the bank robbers, you know, you want them to get away. This, this idea of I'm going to escape and go to South America and start over and maybe go on the straight and narrow and make some money and, you know, make a little home for myself, maybe raise some children you know, that's basically what Robert was saying when he finally got out. And the reason he didn't want any part of the escape is he was due to get out pretty shortly after the escape occurred. And he wanted to go make a home and have a family. And that's exactly what he did. Absolutely. And I think it's a good point. I mean, I always tell people that, you know, you really have to be careful, right? Because a lot of people see them as sort of folk heroes. And you know, you got to remember that, you know, they they absolutely were were bank robbers. The Anklins, it was, you know, proven, you know, in some of the evidence photos that they had used toy guns. Uh, one of them did have a real gun, but um, these were not victimless crimes. Um, and, you know, I, I, I always say that it's really important that, especially when you, you know, see kids kind of walking around the cells, everything else, that you don't want to glamorize these men. I mean, there was no valor in a lot of these crimes. I mean, Whitey Bulger himself admitted that, that 
you know, he belonged in prison, that, you know, these are, they're criminals. And, um, but what I would say is that, you know, it is, it is fascinating, right? I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how the ingenuity of, you know, these convicts that they're sitting and, you know, conspiring together and kind of finding ways to break the system. And I think that there's a part that because they didn't hurt anybody in their crimes, so to speak, that there is a part, I guess, that you sort of root for them. And, um, it, you know, it's just intriguing, I guess. But um, it, and it's tough. And, it, and there's always a balance, right? Because I always think that it's so important that a lot of the men that were at Alcatraz, they were there for a reason. They belonged in prison. But I will say, you know, not to get off topic that, you know, I, I think that there were some great lessons from Alcatraz that you you know, you, I love the fact, you know, my, my, especially with Bob and these people is that the redemption stories of Alcatraz are my favorite. And I love the people that, you know, they, they realized that Alcatraz was a turning point for them. And the thing that Alcatraz provided that a lot of other prisons today don't provide is that it gave them access to learn meaningful skills that translated into meaningful employment in free society. And and I think that that's kind of the failure today in a lot of the prisons that they're doing, they're learning factory work and things like that, that when they get out, they can't get jobs because they have criminal record. And on top of that, they don't really have any skills that they can use and, and they don't see any other pathway to earn a living. So they go back into crime. And I don't have the answers. You know, I'd fully admit that I think it's a complex issue because I'm certainly in no way endorsing a pedophile to be given a job at a school. But I also think that if you have men in prison who you know that they're going to be released back into free society, we have to make sure that we're giving them the skills and the ability to earn a living so they can support their family to keep them out of crime. And I think that Bob is a great example is that he got out of prison in, uh, in June of 1965. Um, he, you know, never reoffended. He was a good person when he got out. And let me tell you, you know, Bob Stroyd's an incredible one. You know, he, this guy was robbing banks. Um, there's an incredible story about Bob. I remember looking at the, uh, the news articles that, uh, his daughter, you know, Kelly had, had shared with me and, you know, it, it's an incredible story The at the time the bank actually had weapons. They had a, a, a game rifle and a pistol and the bank manager came out after he had been robbed from Bob and his uh, crime partner. And they he's shooting at him. You know, there's a shootout as they're leaving the bank. So, it's something out of a Hollywood film. Um, but they were young. You know, Bob, I think, was 24 when he was robbing banks. And that's no excuse. But, um, but I do think that recognizing a lot of these men, uh, and I've met so many that, you know, they recognize that they had made some really fatal mistakes in their life. And Alcatraz was a turning point. And, and just to share with you, you know, a lot of these men who would train, uh, you know, they'd become an x-ray tech. One of them who I was just in awe of is that, you know, he became a surgical tech. And in talking with him, he learned all those skills at Alcatraz. And, and surgical techs make a lot of money and he did really well in free society. So, you sort of have to applaud that recognizing. And then, and then I'm on the other extreme too. You know, I'm a I'm often criticized. You know, I'm a believer in the death penalty. I think that certain crimes, you know, that they, it earns them a valor in prison, which I think is just unacceptable to me. You know, the cop killers and those brutal people. So I think that it's a it's a complex issue that I certainly have no answers to. But you know, I do think that there's some lessons from Alcatraz that we could all take away from that model.
Well, I will piggyback on one thing you said. There is no such thing as a victimless crime. There's just not. Somebody's hurt by it. Somebody has to pay financially for it. So I will say that. And I also, you know, I don't want to focus too much on Robert, but you mentioned, you know, his bank robbing. And I just want to tell people, I think Robert had the greatest getaway vehicle ever in history, which was the USS Franklin Delano Roosevelt. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just freaking brilliant. You know, anybody can have a fast car or a train or just run. Um, But I just, his story is amazing. And we'll talk about Robert more, I'm sure, at another time. But I want to go back to cell block B. They actually had a workstation where they could go and develop some of their tools and get their paints together to make the mask and that sort of thing. Will you talk about that a little bit? It was really crafty what they did. Vulture had stated that they had really examined a lot of different escape attempts at other prisons. One of the people they had looked at was the great escape of Willie Sutton out of Eastern State Penitentiary, where he had actually used a very similar, uh, you know, plaster head to kind of, you know, fool officers when he escaped and went through a tunnel. The only problem with his mask for me were those eyelashes, honey. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's amazing that Bulger had indicated like everybody knew Sutton's story. And it was something that while obviously they wouldn't have had, you know, Sutton's book in the prison, but everybody was aware of it. And one of the things that these guys were always doing is that they're out on the yard and they're just talking with each other and sort of bouncing ideas off each other to see like what would be the best thing that would work. And so it was, I, I think, very ingenious that they were able to collect hair they actually were able to collect oil paints that they were using for portrait painting in their cells. They had flesh tone paint. Yes. And, you know, flesh tone paints. And and the Anglins, by the way, were very good artists. I mean, I if you look at some of the portraits that they were painting of their girlfriends, I mean, these were uh, these were actually really, really well done, you know, and very skilled. The idea that they were able to collect so many different items and then just the the artistic element of sculpting these heads with different materials. I mean, it's kind of interesting because many, many years ago, when I had went in and they had showed me the heads, they had, uh, and this is many years ago, of course, you couldn't handle them today, but, you know, the, the gentleman and the, the archivist, you know, he let me hold one of them and it was very light, you know, clearly it was just made from plaster. And then when he handed me the next one, I almost dropped it because it was all cement. And I was like, you should have warned me. Um, you know, it was it was amazing. But they used different materials. The heads, I think, were very convincing. You know, you have to remember that this would have been in the middle of the night mm-hmm. with, you know, low lighting for an officer and somebody who was not, you know, shining their flashlight into a cell probably would have never even noticed. And the the grills that they created to sort of trick officers where they looked incredibly good. It's just fascinating how much thought into the details that they put into it and, and to pull it off that it just, I don't think the officers would have ever expected something that elaborate. Well, just like you were saying, the way they brought the hair in, that's the same kind of way that they took some of the, you know, residue and all that from their sawing. Out. They just put it in their pockets, and when they got in the yard, they just 
dropped it right there on the ground. I mean, nobody would have ever noticed that. Exactly. And and it's really interesting because they were also, you know, one of the the few benefits that they were able to, you know, they were able to work and earn money. And then also they were allowed to have magna, uh, magazine subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, g- using popular science articles on, there was one on how to uh, make your own decoys for duck hunting. And so they used the vulcanizing um, methods to actually put together their raft from the raincoats that they had put together. Yeah. That's one thing that blew my mind when I learned that. I thought that's beyond genius. Yeah, and one and anybody, you know, you you should kind of Google their their life vest, for example, and take a look at some of the FBI photos of the life vest. And they they're incredible looking. I mean, they look in my mind, they look professionally done. The one that they found that you had mentioned actually uh held held air mm-hmm. for over 45 minutes. I mean, it was uh it was pretty amazing. So when you look at the ingenuity to everything that went into that. The escape itself is really, really fascinating to me. So they made a drill. And, and I want people to understand. So they're, they're in prison, in a maximum security prison, toughest one in the world. And they get a motor from a broken vacuum cleaner and make a drill. So the drills were kind of amazing because in one case, they used like barber shears. They used the motor of that. And uh, were able to p- kind of put a drill bit to it, uh, which was not successful. And then Alan West had found that in one of the vacuum cleaners, it actually had two motors. So he removed one of the motors and it actually had kind of a, a spinning like a cylinder. And he was effectively able to take a, um, uh, you know, a drill bit and put it into that. But believe it or not, they ended up abandoning those because they were too loud they felt that they would have been, you know, probably discovered with the noises that were being made. So, so they did try a variety of different things. And then what ended up being used was that they were able to secure star drills, which are just very thin. They look like uh, almost like wooden dowels, so to speak. And they were able to use those to very slowly kind of drill a hole. And then they would kind of blow out the dust from the cement and they they made a, a holes all the way around the grill. There was a small ventilation grill in the cell, and then they took spoons, these uh, very heavy spoons that they were able to secure from the dining hall, and then cut the heads of the spoon off, and then sort of use that as a tool. And it's pretty remarkable, I think, that if you're able to kind of Google around and you can see some of the photos of their cells, it's just kind of ingenious, you know, that they were able to pull that off, you know, all under the noses of these officers. Well, you kind of mentioned, you know, that some of the guards might have been a little relaxed because, again, whoever would have believed this would have occurred. And they did a few things, like some of the inmates complained about having the flashlights right in their face during the evening. So you don't want to just incite people. But if you were to bounce that flashlight off the ceiling, I mean, talk about low lighting. I mean, you're not going to get a real good picture of them. And if you see a head and... You see hair, I mean, move on. They're there. Exactly. And I, I think that, you know, by that time, I, I, you know, I kind of felt bad for the officer. I mean, um, you know, Whitey Bolter, initially, by the way, I remember he had sort of recounted the story. There was an officer who they all called Herman the German. And um, that, you know, I thought it was kind of odd that he would have come out and, you know, confided with, you know, the, you know, any of the the convicts. But he had claimed that he did come out and he was, you know, saying that they're going to blame it all on me. You know, I'm in trouble for this. 
And then sure enough, you know, later on finding this memo that, you know, he wasn't doing the counts and that he acknowledged that he didn't do the count that night. You know, I think that there's, it's, it's a complacency, but, but I, I felt bad for him in a sense that too, that, you know, here he is walking this, you know, the cell block corridor and like, like he's done probably a thousand times before. And who would have thought, you know, in the middle of a cell block that these men could have made their way out. And I think that, you know, the, the convicts that were all always very keen to observe the behaviors of the officers. I mean, that's something that they watched very closely. And um, so, as you can imagine, you know, it was a, a pretty major failure in the end where these men, you know, escaped at the time from the most, you know, inescapable prison and with a very, you know, low convict population. So, you know, the the ratio of officers to inmates was about one officer to every three inmates. So, as you could imagine, I mean, that's a pretty big number. And to think that they were able to get away with it and, um, you know, pull off something like that is just, it's still a little perplexing to me, even after all these years. And it's still the great mystery, right? I mean, it's uh, one of the most famous escapes. You know, I was captured by it as a kid too. And it's it's incredible that today we're still trying to debate, you know, the, the face of these men. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier, connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Talk a little bit because we, we have mentioned music hour more than once, but talk a little bit about the accordion and what it was used for. So Frank Morris, and these are all, you know, like within the archives, you can actually see that, you know, he was able to secure this instrument, which is very accordion-like. It's called the concertina. Kind of reminds me of the instrument that you would see like in the Pirates of the Caribbean where they have the, you know, it's almost like a, a squeeze box, so to speak. And he was able to secure this instrument that he ordered with the money that he had earned 
uh, through a catalog. He actually removed the reeds out of it and created kind of a valve to where he could use it um, as a bellow to where he could actually inflate the raft. And so what's interesting is that um, it, it was missing out of his cell. It was never found. So it, they clearly took it with them and then they used it to inflate the raft. And, and, you know, many things like that, I think, are so amazing that, you know, the detail that went into every little piece. And they had also created a second raft that was on, you know, f- discovered up on top of the cell block that was unused. And um, you could see where the, the valve that they had created um, to blow it up was um, it, it's kind of amazing. You know, it was uh, very elaborate. I think that that was kind of the prototype that they used. And then, um, you know, the, the real raft, I bet I would expect was probably designed and built and crafted, you know, much better than that one. Just brilliant, right? I mean, it, sometimes it seems so simple. And this to me was almost a perfect storm. If the guards were relaxed or skipped that one check, not resonating with you that, hey, that's flesh tone, you know, not noticing that they're not sweeping the hair up, maybe that it's in their pants, not noticing that, hey, that suitcase moved from over there to over there and might be hiding something. You know, I mean, the cardboard is missing. The saws are missing. 50 raincoats. I mean, I don't think there's any excuse that you've missed that. I mean, a spoon I might can get with, but 50 raincoats is, that's a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is something you got to keep in mind that it literally was, I would say, you know, almost a year in planning. So this is something that they did over a long period of time. Um, You know, Frank Morris was working in the brush shop, you know, he was able to get glues and other, you know, other glues that they could use to help kind of seal the raft. I mean, they were able to secure so many different types of materials to help them kind of, you know, affect this escape. It was very, very elaborate uh, and, and pretty amazing to me. I still, you know, when I, whenever I go back to the island, I'm still in awe when I walk in front of those cells. It really was kind of pulling off the impossible, if you will. Well, I think you would agree with the number of interviews that you have done and the relationships that you have built that you cannot meet and get to know and understand these inmates without befriending them. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, uh, I mean, for me, you know, it, it's, uh, and I mean this sincerely that, you know, I'm, I'm always a little bit uh, hesitant with them as I kind of get to know a lot of them. And when I would do interviews, because, you know, I recognized that oh, they were criminals, you know, and many of them, you know, I'm always ad- admire the ones that made it out of prison and kind of you know, made positive changes in their life. But there were some that I interviewed that, you know, of course, still have that element to them, if you will. But it is interesting that you kind of, as you learn, you know, the, the you know, I think Whitey Bulger said it best. He said, you know, he, he kind of likened it to the time that he was there. He was there for about the same time that you would, you know, in high school. So, you know, about four years, Bob was there for five years. You really create some close bonds with these individuals. They, you know, these men, they had close relationships with each other, and I think that they were very loyal to each other. And the other thing that I am, you know, really fascinated with is that on the other side of the cells, you know, Alcatraz was sort of a mirror of society at that time, and so it was segregated to some degree. And on the opposite side of the cell block, that they would have been very aware of what was going on were the African-American inmates right on the other side. And they never, I mean, they would have had, they would have been able to benefit by kind of ratting them out and letting officers know. I mean, they could have had their time reduced. They could have got off the island, but they never said a word. 
everybody can could cover this up for everybody, which is incredible. And for me, you know, I mean, I, I have to say that it's been uh, fascinating, uh, you know, a gift in, in many ways for me to get to know a lot of them. I always feel a little bit guilty about saying that, you know, I didn't know Whitey Bulger, obviously, when he was a criminal, but, you know, I, I liked him. You know, he was a very interesting person to talk to and he had a, a good sense of the history there. Men like Bob, you and I both have a, a common friend in Kelly, his daughter. And, you know, I love Kelly. She, uh, I think that Kelly, who loves the history of Alcatraz, really pushed Bob to sort of share his story as well. And, and their stories are fascinating. And that's always incredible to me that there's just so many stories of these men. It's, it's, uh, it's never ending. Yeah, Kelly has honored her dad in a brilliant, beautiful way to me. No question. She understands exactly who he was before her and after her. And I think that's important for any child. But I, I want to tell you one thing. When I was meeting with Bob at his house, we got to laughing because he said, after we talked, you know, for a pretty good minute, he was laughing, saying, well, you know as much about inmates as I do. You sound like a convict when you talk, which made me laugh. And he said, let's have a drink. And I was like, now, Bob, I got to drive after this. So, I mean, I can't you know, celebrate too much <laughs> with you. But he said, listen, he said, I don't cook for people, but I do understand vodka. And so this is what he told me. He said, you take down a glass, you get a bottle of vodka, you twist off the cap, you pour the glass about halfway full. Now you leave the cap off because you know you're coming back. Then he said, sit and sip with a friend and tell stories about your life of crime and your life after. And then laugh about how much you hate cops. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, round two, repeat, which that to me was Bob. So again, to your point, I know what his past was. But I also know the family that he made and the love that he shared. And, you know, he went straight. And so you got to admire that, too, because he could have got out and been angry and bitter and did harm. And he chose not to. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important. You know, I mean, I, um, I I really, you know, I love law enforcement. You know, I, I think that a lot of these men and women, it's a really tough job to sort of work in those environments and, you know, working crimes and things like that. But I, I have to say that, you know, I, I do admire the people that, you know, I've met a lot of men. I spent a lot of time with them and those that really did change their life. I think that, you know, a lot of people when they're young do make mistakes and I'm in no way trying to make excuses for them. I mean, they committed crimes, but they did their time. And, and those, I mean, I, I think Kelly's a great example that, you know, this was not a person who was a horrible father. You know, I mean, I, I think that somebody who acknowledges their past and and he made amends and and tried to be a, a better human being i think a lot goes to say that you know with that and um and i like bob he was a he was a character by the way <laughs> he was an absolute character no question michael eslinger did they make it did they survive well you know i always feel like i let people down when i try to answer the question because I, I I am not on the fence on anything in my life. <laughs> I have an opinion, but <laughs> I, I I would say that you know, ten twenty years ago, I was an I was absolutely adamant that there's no way that they survived. And what I would say today is is that you know I think it was Carl Sagan that you know had the great quote that you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I will say that there's a lot more evidence today that kind of pushed me to the fence where. 
I think if they were to discover that they had made it, I I would absolutely not be shocked because I think that I believe that there is a real chance that those men survived. But the other part of it is, is that, you know, I'm still suspect that, you know, you would think that there would have been more evidence that we'd see today that had they survived, whether they went on to have their families and things like that. It's just surprising that um, it's surprising that there's not more evidence that they survived. But but again, you know, we've, we've you know done a lot of research. I mean, there was bones that were found uh, less than a year later up by Point Reyes. It's pretty much been proven that, you know, it, it, those bones did not belong to Frank Morris or the Anglins. I mean, it's for every piece of evidence that suggests they died, there's another piece of evidence that comes up that suggests that they lived. And I think that, you know, here we are today, you know, 60 years later, still debating whether or not, you know, we believe that they made it or not. And, um, and I think the story is so compelling. And I, I hope that someday it's something that will be solved, that we'll learn the truth about what happened. And, and I still believe that in my heart, it's still a solvable case that, you know, somewhere out there is, you know, there's evidence of, of you know, what the outcome was. And um, I'm hoping I'm hoping that I'll I'll learn that, you know, learn the truth at some point. I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do with a quote. There's something addictive about secrets. J. Edgar Hoover. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.